Hello and welcome, welcome to episode two of the Bases uh, podcast, stress group in paediatric exercise science. It's the last time because it's a mouthful. Um, so we just put it as the Bases Sig. We, we we know what it is now. We're nice and nice and established. So we had Professor Neil Armstrong on last week, um, and we've had some great feedback to date. Um, and I want to. I want to keep up with kind of the leaders in the field, and we're we're joined today by uh, Joe Eisenman, all the way across from Michigan. Um, so I believe it's about where you are, Joe. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So eight o'clock where we are in the UK at time recording. So I've just put the three kids to bed, so we could be interrupted at any point by one of them. Um, so I'll I'll prep everyone now. But today we're going to talk with Joe about um, about long term athletic development, um, the overarching conversation. We're going to go kind of the same framework that we covered with uh, with Neil Armstrong as well. So, without further ado, for those of you who don't know who you are, Joe, could you just introduce yourself and and tell us a little bit about you and what got you into this field? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and obviously honored to be on uh, the podcast. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues. Uh, within the bases network, uh, which is also linked into the NASPEM yeah. uh, group as well. Um, and obviously put me in a tough spot following uh, Professor Armstrong uh, being the second guest, but um, again, happy to be on. Um, uh, in terms of my background, um, I've been doing this work, I guess, my entire life. Uh, I got into the field really as a young boy, um, probably through unstructured free play and physical literacy. Um, you know, the ability to competently, confidently express myself through fundamental movement skills and apply them to any physical activity and sporting environment. Yeah. I, I you know, enjoyed uh, free play in that unstructured sporting environment and enjoyed some success in, in sports um, as an adolescent and high school athlete which really led me uh, to play collegiate athletics and get into the field of physical education and health. Uh, I, I coached uh, baseball uh, during my summers, became interested in strength and conditioning and sports performance because of my involvement as an athlete and as a coach. Um, always trying to improve myself and the athletes that I coach through strength and conditioning, biomechanics, uh, sports psychology. That yeah. curiosity, that curiosity really led me to graduate studies um, and then ultimately to pursue my PhD with another one of the real leaders and pioneers in the field being uh, Professor Bob Molina. Um, assuming a lot of the guests who are going to listen to this um, know Professor Molina and you know the title of his textbook, Growth, Maturation, and Physical Activity. So he literally wrote the, the book on the topic. Um, so yeah, very fortunate to study with Professor Molina and really fully learn oxology, um, which I think is really critical for our field, is really understanding you know human growth and maturation at its core, mm -hmm. um, and then applying that to physical activity and youth sports. Um, so from there, I went into you know professorships at four different universities, um, and then probably uh, five years ago or so. Um, really took a return back to my roots in youth athletic development. So yeah. again, what, 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 
when I got into academia, uh, because of the size of the universities that I was at, um, and the pressures, if you will, of, uh, federal grant dollars, um, there's not a lot of research dollars allocated towards youth athletic development. Most of the money in the United States is allocated towards, you know, child obesity and chronic diseases. Uh, physical physical activity and public health, if you will. So I, I, I went down that route. Um, but I was always doing uh, some, I, I guess I call it hobby research in terms of youth sports and youth athletic development. But again, about five years ago, I, I decided to return to my roots in youth athletic development and founded what was called uh, Spartan Performance. It was at Michigan State University. It was a research center and also a training center for young athletes in our community to come in and be tested, trained, um, have access to sports nutrition, sports psychology. And then we also went out to uh, high schools and clubs in our area and provided those services as well. Um, In the the past couple of years, um, I've left academia except for my visiting professorship now with Leeds Beckett University. Um, and I'm also starting to do some work with uh, UC Irvine and their Pediatric Exercise and Genomic Center. But my my real focus now is, again, as you mentioned, long-term athletic development and um, really on, on dissemination, translation, and implementation of the knowledge that we have in our field of pediatric exercise science um, and youth athletic development and getting that information into the hands of the end users, that being yeah. sport coaches and sport parents. Um, so that's really where my passion lies now is in, in you know, knowledge translation and implementation. Yeah, well, that's great. That's a, that's a really good introduction. And it's nice that, again, you're on side for getting the, the scientific literature and the knowledge and making that transition into practice. Um, we spoke there about long-term athletic development. And for those who are listening and are trying to marry this up with the Canadian framework, um, how we're going to look at it today is, is is more as in its entirety. So taking into account, yes, you know, the Canadian framework, but also looking at the youth physical development model from Rodney and Lloyd, um, and just looking at some of your work really that you do, Joe, um, and how you approach long-term athletic development. Um, so I guess with taking that into account, with all the different models that are out there, how have you seen athletic development sort of change o- over the years? So my, my first undergraduate major was history, and I've always enjoyed looking at any topic from a historical lens. Um, so like if we, and, and I've, I've been talking about long-term athletic development um, across the U.S. at a variety of coaching clinics and strength and conditioning clinics in the past 12 to 18 months, and I always kind of talk about the history of it. and. And really, I, I start with going back to ancient Greece, um, because there they're preparing young boys to be Spartan warriors. And they had a staged approach in terms of the preparation of the Spartan warriors. And then if we advance to um, around the turn of the 20th century, so um, you know, around 1900 or so, we have the reintroduction of the modern Olympic Games. Yeah. We, we have uh, military action going on with World War One and then obviously World War Two, and we have the Industrial Revolution. So countries are now interested in 
preparing people for hard physical labor in factories, um, also for military readiness, and for the Olympic Games. So there's a lot of uh, national pride uh, yeah. going into this, and I don't think we saw that any better than we did in the Eastern Bloc nations, and particularly the Soviet Union, where they had their GTO program, which was to prepare every citizen for um, readiness to participate in society and industry, but also military readiness and for sport prowess. Yeah. So, so they brought about this concept of physical culture. So what is the physical culture of our nation? How do people look at us? How do we look at ourselves as physical beings? And so, again, they have this staged approach going all the way from, you know, young, young people all the way through the, the lifespan. And um, obviously, for those who follow, you know, strength and conditioning and sports science, we have uh, a lot of important concepts that come out of, you know, Soviet sports science, periodization, uh, velocity-based training. I mean, the, the list goes on in terms of what we learn from preparation of athletes. Um, but with that GTO program for everybody in the nation, they also have, you know, physical fitness testing of youngsters and talent identification, which then place them into sports schools. And then once those youngsters get into sports schools, there's further long-term athletic development to prepare them for, you know, Olympic prowess. And yeah. then, and then, and, and, and I think most people are probably familiar that, Balier was a Hungarian who came to Canada. So he had that um, knowledge of Eastern European bloc uh, methodology, brings that over, packages it very nicely, uh, reintroduces new stages, and basically starts marketing it throughout the world as long-term athletic development as we know it. Yeah. So, so a lot of national governing bodies in the UK and other parts of Europe, Australia, and wherever, start consulting with Bollier, um, which then leads us to a 2011 paper by a group of, from Basies, right, who basically yeah. start criticizing the model, and particularly, you know, number one, the windows of opportunity in sensitive periods, and number two, the 10,000-hour rule. Yeah. Um, and then that brings about the Lloyd and Oliver youth physical development and the composite uh uh, physical development model. Um, and then more recently, um, a student working with them, uh, Andre Picardo, starts to integrate these models. And I think that's really where my thinking is right now is the integration of the models. Yeah. Um, I just used a quote uh, this past weekend when I spoke on this from a mathematician that said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. You know? <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> Like, yeah. uh, I mean, when you're talking there about that sense of pride and that as well from the Eastern Bloc, um, when I embarked on my PhD and you're reading around the literature, um, something that sticks in my mind, I mean, in, in a previous life, I was um, I was a commando. So we used to do on-the-spot PT. It was called Swedish PT, uh, loads of body weight movement, high-intensity work. And when I embarked on my PhD, I was looking around on, on the internet like you do, and I came across a program over in America. I think it was launched. Now, my history isn't great, but I think it was launched by John F. Kennedy. 
in the early 60s, I think. And it was called that it was done through a, a high school called La Sierra. Yes. Um, now, for anyone who hasn't seen this, it's it looks like the commando training that we do in Britain at Limston. Um, it's amazing to watch. And I think that was for me. I thought, yes, I, I want a bit of that. I want to be able to take that into the schools. Um, I mean, that, that was kind of his goal, wasn't it? To, to mimic and try and get that pride back in, in physical prowess and physical fitness. And obviously, obviously, the psychological aspect as well. Yeah. But, but there's some interesting points to make on that. I'm, I'm glad you brought the JFK stuff up because I use that when I talk about the history of long-term athletic development because, you know, I explained uh, the Soviet system and obviously, there's a huge rise in their um, accomplishments, you know, in terms of the, the, the space race um, and Sputnik. Yeah. And, um, and then, obviously, their domination in the Olympics. I, I, I always bring up that between 1952 and 1992, that they placed first or second in medal count in the summer and, and um, winter games. I mean, think about that. They placed first or second for 40 years, right? It's insane, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, ph ph pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical methodologies aside, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing something right in terms of that athletic development and the long-term athletic development yeah. um, in the system. But go, kind of going back to the JFK thing, you know, the, the other thing I like to talk about is, and, 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 we're having a real battle in the U.S. with long-term athlete or athletic development and our physical education system because many of the physical educators are saying, I'm not interested in it because I'm not, I don't train just athletes. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it might be semantics and terminology, but really everybody, should, everybody is an athlete to some certain degree. Yes. You know, we, we want everybody to be proficient at sports skill and or other types of physical exercise. We want them to be physically literate. So it's just, they get hung up on the term athlete. Yeah. But another thing is, you know, again, I, you, you know that I've done a lot of work in, you know, just let's just call it general physical activity and physical fitness. And there's this, there's a, there, there's a parallel between long-term athlete development and this other concept that's used in our field of pediatric exercise science and that's physical activity and fitness across the lifespan. Yeah, these 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 are parallel. But cool. but and, and and what we need to do, and I'm hoping that some of the listeners, whether they be from the Basie's Pediatric Sig Group or from the NASPEM Group, start thinking about the parallels between what they do in physical activity and general physical fitness of youngsters, and what we're doing with long-term athletic development because they, yeah. they they truly are parallel we're trying we're both trying to get to the same end goal here and that's yeah. a physically literate society yeah i mean i use that a lot as well you've, you've covered it there nicely um you know i do work with athletes in in my like in my private practice but people go oh you're focused on performance and i say well don't we all just sit on a spectrum of performance so whether we're performing for everyday life or going to work or whether we're building up to the 2020 Olympics, there's still an element of performance in there. And I think you cover that nicely there. Um, looking at that life, that lifelong affinity to, to physical activity, but we need the, the groundwork in first, I guess, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and then there's, there's one more point I want to make about this, 
concept of long-term athlete development that I think sometimes um, people in our field lose sight of because we're so focused on, you know, physical development or athleticism. Um, and obviously, you know, fundamental movement skills and strength um, and general athleticism are the foundation of participation in sport or physical exercise pursuits. Um, but if we, if we go back to the sporting environment, one thing that we don't do a good job of is blending in with the sport coaches and the technical and the tactical aspects of, as well. Because if we, if we really think about athletic development, it's not just the physical development part of it because there's the technical, the tactical, the physical, and the psychosocial aspects as well. Yeah. And so a true long-term athlete development model takes into consideration all four domains of performance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when we're looking at LTAD principles there as well, uh, something that's important to me, um, having three children, is they spend five days a week out of seven in a school environment. How, if at all, have you seen LTAD applied, not just in a sporting context, but also in a, in a school environment to, to promote that affinity to, to physical activity and hopefully for, for the life course? Well, in the United States, we have some serious challenges with that just because physical education continues to be cut from school curricula. Uh, re recesses far and few between. Um, and even sometimes during recess, uh, I've heard that some schools have banned running, they've banned playing tag. Like, what do you do during recess? You know, if you're a great, you're in grade two, you go out and just hang out with your friends and get some fresh air and go back into the classroom. Like, <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it, it's policy, it's policy driven as well. However, with that said, there are some physical education programs, some physical education teachers who are doing an outstanding job yeah. of, you know, teaching fundamental movement skills in a fun and challenging manner um, and using, you know, games-based approach or activity-based approaches because um, that's the other thing is, you know, not making it prescriptive all the time yeah, uh, it, it, and just allowing that, you know, that fun interaction of youngsters um, while they're, you know, learning and mastering these fundamental movements um, activities. Yeah, I mean that's it. Is there's plenty out there for them to go at, but you know that's you know part and parcel of this podcast really is trying to signpost them and give them somewhere to go to because we've got things like you know the long term athletic development, um, all the different sort of models that we can dip in and out of but we've also got things like the safe principles from david lubins in how to deliver them in a school environment as well um and there's a lot of crossover between the school environment and the sporting environment and um, more often than not it's addressed as two separate entities but like you said we're just trying to make it fun and try and get them involved yeah absolutely um i i have to admit i wasn't I, I'm, I'm very much aware of lubins work but i wasn't aware of um, that specific piece and I think that also brings a problem to our field. And sometimes, you know, um, we're, there's so much information that sometimes we don't know all that's out there. And yeah. so, you know, finding ways to have uh, collective hubs, clearing houses, if you will, 
Yeah. So that we all can gain information and then pass it on to and then pass it on to you know the appropriate people and or to start uh, consolidating some of these concepts and models and making yeah. them you know m making them widely available and useful again for the end user becomes important. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, if if you were to sit back now and, and look at how LTAD's developed as a whole, so taking into account all the models. How how would you like to see that change in the future? So we we spoke briefly there about joint work, and then hopefully, uh, you know, the basis sig and some of the work that you're doing over in the states is is gonna push that forward and cultivate that sort of that environment, if you like. What else would you like to see change from a firstly from a research perspective, and then from a a practice based perspective as well? Yeah, so, some of my colleagues aren't gonna like me on this one. <laughs> I, I, I think we've done enough research. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that there aren't, that research is not valuable and, um, you know, we can't continue to gain insights from research because we certainly can, but all the big rocks, we, we know about all the big rocks. We know about all the big principles. And again, yeah. th th this is, it's time for implementation. So I, I like to challenge my colleagues. Um, I did it this past weekend. And again, these were strength and conditioning coaches and some were at the college level, uh, some, were some were physios, but I like to challenge them to get out into their community and implement and help youth sport coaches who oftentimes in our country are volunteers uh, to help them with e the implementation of long-term athletic development and teaching foundational movement skills, designing appropriate practices, and basically applying pediatric exercise science to the youth sports and or physical education environments. Yeah. And, 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 and really in terms of like changes that I'd like to see for the future, Again, it's about dissemination and implementation. It's also about academic practitioner partnerships. Yeah. Uh, team, you know, team science, that's a big buzzword right now in, you know, the research community. And it's more multidisciplinary research. But I think the other part of team science is adding the practitioners as well. I mean, I've met a lot of practitioners in the last couple of years. And I sit and I listen to them. And I'm like, Wow. I want you to come into my pediatric exercise science class and, and talk to, to my students about what you just taught me. Because again, I mean, they're scientists as well. Sometimes they don't recognize it or understand it, but they make observations every day. Yeah. Right. That's the first step of science is observation, right? They are in their own heads creating hypotheses. They are, right? collecting information and quote unquote data and, yeah. eva and evaluating it. And that gets to the, another concept that I call the living lab. We have tons of living labs all across the world in soccer academies and physical education classrooms. Like these are our subjects, right? Ash, like as pediatric exercise scientists and academics, yeah. a physical education classroom, a youth sports practice field, a competition, that is a laboratory. And man, wouldn't we love to have everybody consent and be able to collect all the information that we wanted? And, it, <laughs> and, and, and I think we can if, if we partner with practitioners and 
those organizations and create yes. basically, you know, a community participatory action research living lab. Yeah. I mean, so I think sometimes people are just afraid to approach, you know, from, from academic or scientist down to um, practitioner and practitioner down to scientist as well. It doesn't, it, there's something missing that that communication is, is missing. Um, I don't know how we'd overcome that, to be honest. Um, I think it's probably one of the challenges that we need to address before we, uh, like you said, conduct conduct further research, really. Yeah, I, I, I have I have a answer for you. I'm not going to say it's a complete answer because I'm still working on it. Yeah. But, but I, <clears throat> I show a photo of my bookshelf uh, these days um in in my presentations and um it's it 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 does not have uh any of the textbooks that we think about in terms of pediatric exercise science on it it does not have molina's textbook on it it does not have armstrong's textbook on it so on and so forth it's a bookshelf that has human behavior communication persuasion type textbooks because, yeah. because what we need to do a better job, and when I say we, I mean scholars and academics, we got to put our ego aside. We need to go in and create trust and build buy-in of these folks who are working with kids on a day-in and day-out basis, not in the ivory tower, but, but, yeah. gra but grassroots. And we need to effectively communicate, create partnerships with them, and truly collaborate with them. And um, again, I think it's going to be a win-win. Yeah. Scholars are going to learn a lot from what's really going on at the grassroots level. And practitioners are obviously going to benefit from the knowledge that scholars can bring of, you know, the child and adolescent athlete or mover. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. That's, that's a good point. I mean, there's a lot of, quantitative research done where we look at the the outputs the physical outputs and maybe to even an extent the qualitative work's getting better as well in in adolescents yeah. and pediatrics but it's not very often you see the PE teacher's perspective or the sport coach's perspective who may have to deliver this intervention as well long term um just kind of thinking off the cuff there it might be a, a good way to go and start getting the qualitative data from the parents and the coaches and the teachers as well, moving, you know, moving forward along the line. Well, that falls in line with team science, doesn't it? Yeah. So not just having the hard science folks, but, you know, and, and I hate using this term, but soft science, right? But, yeah. but ha you know, have, having, a, having a mix, and that falls right in line with mixed methodology, quantitative and qualitative. I, my wife is actually a math educator. She's a professor. And um, she uses entirely qualitative research. And I remember when I first started, like we would have these arguments at the dinner table about, you know, hard science versus, you know, the qualitative quote unquote fluff stuff that she was using. And I mean, yeah, we, we would leave the dinner table and we would not speak to each other. So <laughs> we, we made a rule that we would never again, you know, talk about research methods at the dinner table. But again, over the last three, four years, I, I pick my wife's brain a yeah. lot. You know, I'm like, there's, there's definitely room here and it's almost becoming a necessity. Uh, it's just, 
It's it's ways of knowing, right? And that's is. what we're trying to. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn more. It so sounds like a male female thing to me, Joe. To be honest, it sounds like <laughs> the men want to get the toys out and do the blood works and the strength <laughs> tests and. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, if we go back as well, just a basic intervention design, uh, and I apologise to anyone who's a practitioner listening to this, but I guess it's just as applicable. The complex intervention cycle that was put in place by Craig uh, and, and colleagues um, goes on to discuss the importance of qualitative data alongside the quantitative to try and contextualise what we're actually looking at anyway. Um, but like we just discussed there, it, it, it is often missed out of of these pieces of research when it goes into a bigger study. Um, you know, it kind of starts falling apart, really. It doesn't have any length uh, length to it in the real world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and again, I, I know that there's probably going to be a lot of our colleagues in academia who are going to be listening to this, but I, I, I just want to fold back in the, you know, the practitioners as well. And, yeah. I, and, and if a practitioner is listening, you know, they're probably rolling their eyes like right now, like, oh, those guys are talking all academic stuff. But, you know, again, I, I think it's really important for the practitioner to be part of this um process and this methodology of again better understanding the human child movement environment and that the practitioners can give us a lot of insight into in how we frame our problems and our methodologies and again it doesn't have to be always you know the research that we think about because um, what we're trying to what we're trying to do is provide solutions as well right yeah um, it, 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 and again they oftentimes want solutions as well. You know, how do you get their kids to perform better or, you know, how, you know, what ways that, that they can use for um, better designing practices to enhance fundamental movement skills. Again, these are things that we can help them with, um, but we can learn a lot from their knowledge as a practitioner and, and how they're going about their practice environment. Or, or competition environment or physical education setting. Yeah, which I guess that that brings me nicely really into the next point. Um, when I'm discussing this with, with people who are on the ground doing the practice and we talk about LTAD or it's, it's more phrased as programming or periodization of how we're going to deliver uh, these interventions, the the question that I get asked most is, well, what does it matter and what's the difference? So thinking about LTAD and, and particularly for me, what sticks in my mind is the youth physical development model from uh, Rodri and Lloyd. What's the key differences that you would say to address and make sure you've got your ducks in a row with when it comes to the physiological differences between obviously adults and, and youth sport? So, so I think the question is, really is hinging on, you know, what are the differences between, you know, young athletes, adolescent athletes, and then the adults, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then in terms of how you go about training them. Um, so that in, in a lot of ways, the differences um, come down in large part to body size and then the neuro and then the neural or hormonal aspects um, of regulation. And again, yeah. the, the nervous system and the endocrine system are the two great control systems of the body. And they, you know, between body size and these regulators of, 
you know, what's, what's propelling movement and or causing uh, adaptations to training. Um, they're going to affect muscular contraction, energy metabolism, and then hence force production, energetic capacity, and power output. Um, okay. I, I, again, moving more towards that model of Oliver and Lloyd, um, it, it's really multilateral development and, and making sure that we're training all facets of athleticism and obviously, you know, based on, uh, you know, Scamans curves, which outlines, you know, development of all systems of the body. We know that there's large in, increases in neural development, um, yeah. you know, pre-pubertal. So it's, it, it's this really uh, ripe time, if you will, uh, for motor skill acquisition, movement, pad, m- movement pattern acquisition. So obviously focusing a lot on those fundamental movement skills um, and laying the, laying the foundation for it. And, and again, when we think of fundamental movement skills, there's aspect of, you know, sprint mechanics in there. There's aspects of change of direction mechanics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, strength, you know, strength training type exercises, pushes, pulls, carries, uh, lunges, squats, bracing, rotation. Um, and again, these don't have to be done with barbells, right? It, number one, it's teaching them the, the movement patterns of push, pull, brace, rotate. Yeah. They can be done with uh, resistance bands, medicine balls. Um, and then obviously as we move towards adolescent and obviously particularly in adolescent boys with, you know, changes in the hormonal milieu, you know, we can get hypertrophy. Um, yeah. and, and if we've done a good job of creating, uh, building that fundamental movement skill platform and the, and, and the movement platform, we can start doing advanced type training drills uh, to augment speed, agility, uh, changes, uh, continue to have, have strength gains. And, and again, that's another big criticism of, you know, the, the, the volume model is, you know, strength training really wasn't emphasized until mm. pu- uh, pubescence, post-pubescence, where now we know as a, as a relative percentage, children and adolescents gain about the same if they're engaged in a uh, well-designed program, yeah. you know, a- a- as a percentage gain, right? Um, so continuing that, that strength training and the development of strength all the way through, um, and then obviously getting into more advanced type concepts, um, I mean, it, this really all comes down to a simple principle of uh, simple to complex or progressive overlay, overlay yeah. which, which, again, you use the term periodization. This is just a very, 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 very long periodization model. Exactly, yeah. yeah right? Yeah. And, and, and again, typically that was a four-year cycle in preparation yeah. for the Olympic Games. So, you know, you have your younger athletes, you know, in you know that pre-pubertal range, you have your circumpubertal, and then you have your post. You know, you you basically have quadrennial plans. <laughs> may, may it may not be exactly four years, but kind of thinking about it that way and advancing, um, you know, drills and exercises and methodologies as we move along. Yeah. But again, but but again, that's in an ideal world as well. And typically, we have kids moving in and out of different teams 
organizations and systems. And so this whole concept of system integration becomes really important as well. And that is, you know, if we're in, you know, obviously over there in the academy system, system integration becomes um, easier because if that kid stays in that academy, yeah, they, they, they're all the way through and the strength and conditioning coaches and the coaches, they have that kid all the way through and, every, and everybody has agreed upon, you know, a long-term athletic development plan or model. Yeah. Whereas, whereas over here, there's a lot of bouncing around, you know, this kid goes from this team to the next team. They have different coaches. Those coaches don't talk to each other. So the implementation of long-term athletic development in a lot of U.S. sports systems is very, very challenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what I've noticed throughout the, the past sort of 35, 40 minutes there is we've spoke very broadly about everything, which is right. And, and you know, we, we both know that we need to be addressing hypertrophy, strength, power, speed, agility, mode control, so on and so forth. What impact or, you know, whether you have an opinion on this at all, for that matter, do you think early specialization has on long-term physical development, not athletic development? Uh, Ash, you just opened up a can of worms, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. I, I tried yeah. to avoid. I did try yeah, to yeah. avoid. No, but... it, no, it's it's okay because I, I I like to talk about this concept because it it specialization, early sports specialization in particular, gets a lot of flack. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's research that comes out now that shows early sports specialization is oftentimes detrimental. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to say right now that I am not anti-specialization yeah. under, under the right circumstances. And, uh, I'm, I just read this, uh, last night on the plane and it falls in line with what I typically, uh, what I typically state. I'm going to see if I can find it here. Yeah, here we go. This is, this is from the. IOC consensus statement on youth athletic development, uh, published in uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2015. And I'm going to yeah. read. I'm going to read this from the paper, and this is these are exactly my thoughts as well. Uh, appropriate diversity and variability of athletic exposure within a single sport, sport specialization, right? Yeah while supporting sufficient learning of foundational skills and sport-specific technique and biomechanics to minimize injury and optimize performance, along with consistent, adequate rest and recovery and a balanced emphasis on other priorities, family, school, life skills, and social development, can be acceptable and healthy so long as the young athlete is enjoying and benefiting fully from the experience. And let me also add this. It is the child's decision. Yeah. So yeah, that's if, a nice point, isn't it? It's as long as the child you get the buy-in from the child, then I guess there's nothing wrong with it. And I've got I can think of an athlete now off the top of my head who I'm working with. Um fantastic uh BJJ athlete, so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, doing really well and I write his strength conditioning programs. From the outside, and from anyone who follows my work, and they look at it, they think oh, it's you know it's, it's too specialist. He's at BJJ five six days a week, but he loves it. 
and it's just a game to them. And all I do is I just add and make sure the there's a solid foundation in place. Yeah. But that's you know that's exactly what that consensus has covered. It's just about you know they can specialize as long as they're enjoying it. Then, yeah. and at you know adequate rest, they're they're learning all aspects of athleticism. You know because because again when it when it goes wrong is when it's highly specialized. Yeah. You know, but you know, I, I, I'm going to take like a baseball pitcher, right? A kid's nine years old and the dad says, you're going to be a baseball pitcher. And that's all the kid does, does not learn any of the other, you know, foundational movement skills, just throws, 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 does not have adequate rest. They do it 12 months a year. We know we know this is a problem. Yeah, you know. But let's take that same kid and, and you know I'm going to be a baseball pitcher. But they're also learning you know all facets of movement in all planes. They're doing appropriate strength and conditioning. They're doing appropriate rest. They're not throwing every day, right? He still yeah. gets to go out and hang out with his buddies and play pickup basketball. Like. <laughs> It doesn't to me it doesn't become as much of a problem then. Would no. I like to see would I like to see the kid play other organized sports? Yeah, I'd I would i like to. But again, I said he he went out and played pickup basketball with his buddies. He might do that two or three times a week. Yeah. You know? Why did so maybe I go back on my words and say, why does it have to be organized? <laughs> because <laughs> because in some ways that's part of the problem as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. They just need to play and move. That's it. I think once we start taking the enjoyment out of it and making it very grown up, yeah. um, that's when it falls falls flat on its face. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it it's more often. It's funny you brought the family aspect into it. It is more often than not when it comes to early specialization, there is a family influence involved in that. Uh, from my experience, big time. Yes. Yeah. You know what? It's a, it's that car ride home, right? <laughs> you know what? You know that you you have, and again, oftentimes it's the father. You have yeah. this overbearing father trying to live vicariously through their son or daughter, and you know, number one, they're telling them everything that they did wrong, and number two, we need to go get more lessons, and you know, you, <laughs> I, you know. I played college sports, so you're also going to play college sports. Or sometimes it's I didn't play college sports. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, I mean, oftentimes it's you know, I I, I find this is anecdotal, but I yeah. often, but I oftentimes find it's you know those parents who didn't have as much success, maybe, um, or they thought they should have had more success as a youngster, and again, they try to live vicariously through their child and or push for that college scholarship, which. In our country, less than two percent are going to receive, anyways. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? Uh, it so, is. I mean, we've we've covered quite a lot there, and we we spoke about how important the practitioners are to all this process. You know, through this child-centric process, I guess. What advice or where would you signpost practitioners when it comes to monitoring growth and maturation? Because we've we've indicated that's an important element of this process. Um, we've touched on some of the reasons why, but for a practitioner who's listening to this podcast now, or even for some early career academics, maybe some undergrad students, where would you signpost them to get more information on how to assess and monitor growth? Um, where would you go for that? 
I mean, uh, obviously, uh, again, I'm probably biased, right? I'm going to go to the Molina uh, textbook, you know, <laughs> yeah. the gro- growth, maturation, and physical activity. But all of the, all of the, you know, textbooks on pediatric exercise science yeah. will have a great, will have a great chapter at least on, you know, growth and maturation, um, and not just height and weight, but of all of the physical traits that you know we've kind of talked about throughout the last 45 minutes, and then their assessment. Um, yeah. it, there have been a few uh, short articles, blogs that have been written on it, and you know, we, I really haven't talked about that aspect. But I think that's another thing I'm going to urge all the academics to do. And you're, you you do a great job with it, but you know, social media and blogging and infographics yeah. and other other forms of uh, you know knowledge translation that I think the academics really need to take into consideration. Um, maybe this has prompted me to, you know, write a blog on, you know, monitoring growth and maturation for the youth sport coach. Definitely. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, again, it's one thing that I, I really cherish now in my career is taking time to do that, you know. Yeah. Okay. Because I have to stand up in front of 30 coaches and talk to them about the importance of growth and maturation. How can you assess it? And I need to make it simple. I need to make it so that they can do this on Monday morning, right, or yes. Monday afternoon. Um, so, yeah, obviously, you know, all of the pediatric exercise science textbooks, you know, are going to have information on assessing growth and maturation and how these traits change. But, you know, um, again, I, I've been doing some of this on my uh, Bolt Athletics blog uh, in terms of trying to translate this information for coaches and sport parents. As well, yeah, which takes us back probably full circle, doesn't it? To us sharing information and disseminating the information appropriately, not just between ourselves at conferences or via email or through papers, but also just uh, you know using various social media platforms to get the to share the knowledge essentially and and try and upskill even just the you know the dad who takes the Sunday league sort of football on a on a Sunday morning, so. That's a nice, nice part and note to finish on there. I think. Um, so, where, where can we find out more about yourself then, Joe? Obviously, you, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter. Fairly active. I, I, I was a laggard uh, getting on. I, I, I joined late, um, but it's been a great medium for me. So, Joe underscore Eisenman. Um, and then again, I just mentioned my Bolt Athletics blog. Uh, yeah. So, boltathletics.com. Uh, um, you can just go to the blog and, uh, again, I'm, I, I do at, at least probably monthly, sometimes twice a month, uh, putting out information on long-term athletic development through that, through that blog. Yeah. Um, and then I also, I also mentioned, uh, at the start of the podcast, I think my, my new work with, uh, University of California, Irvine Pediatric Exercise and Genomics Research Center. I'm, I'm going to be doing some knowledge translation, some blogging, some infographics, right. Um, on basically children and exercise, youth fitness, youth sports, the the whole gamut. So, um, actually, before I got on the call, I was doing some work on that. We're going to have that blog up and going here in the next couple of uh, weeks. So, stay tuned for that. Oh, so that's, great! Yeah. So that that website. Uh, let me just pull it up here quick. What I'll do as well for everyone who's listening, I'll I'll put these into the show notes. So I'll put Joe's Twitter handle and uh, a link to your ResearchGate as well because you're on ResearchGate, aren't you? So 
Yeah. I'll put all that on there, uh, the link to Vault Athletics and then the website as well for the, the infographics and the future blogs. Yep. Yeah, so that's uh, perp.uci.edu. Okay, great. Well, I'll stick that into the show notes as well, Joe. That's great. That It's good to see, you know, that the knowledge is, needs to be shared, essentially, like we discussed. So that's good. Brilliant. I mean, for, for those of you listening, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's It's been a good insight. So, we're, you know, we're approaching the hour mark now again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so um, we could probably go on for another hour, I guess. Um, if you want to know more about the, the bases, uh, Pediatric SIG, then just DM us on Twitter. We've also got a, a closed forum where there's various different academics and researchers um, and advanced practitioners who are sharing knowledge. Um, and there's also a WhatsApp group as well um, where we can kind of get our ducks in a row and decide on what information we want to share. So the idea is to grow this and to get as many different aspects of paediatric and adolescent sport and exercise science and health and physical activity and psychology and nutrition um, so we can try and help future generations i guess um and that's and that is that i'm just going to thank you again joe thanks for coming on really appreciate it um and you're over in the uk aren't you soon as well we were discussing that just just earlier on yeah i am uh arrived july 23rd uh fly out the 30th i'll be there for the child champion uh workshop uh yeah. july 27 and 28 but i do have some time uh, outside of that obviously i have a few colleagues to visit uh but uh, if you're interested in uh, connecting with me, uh, feel free to email me as well. So joeisenman at gmail.com. Great. There you go. Take that opportunity. All right. Cheers again, Joe. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Thank you.